with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 1. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 1. God uses means. Leadership attracted me to be a pastor at first as a young man. That preaching, that what I'm about to do, God used it to keep me in the pastorate. I learned to appreciate it. I saw it as an opportunity to grow in God's word. And people validated that it was a gift that God had given me. That it wasn't leadership or preaching that kept me in this role that I'm in today. Shepherding taught me the meaning of the pastorate. I'm quite confident that you can go read a book on leadership, many of them. I'm also confident that you can listen online to good preaching, many of them. But everyone needs a pastor. The shepherding happens local. It cannot be outsourced. It cannot be made more efficient through a new process management. It cannot be more efficient than Jesus made it in the community he created in the local church. There is no substitute for it. The bride of Christ, the church, is in view in this last chapter of this last book of the Bible. And I'm thankful to be growing deeper with you, deeper than leadership, even deeper than preaching, as helpful as those things can be. This is about shepherding. I tend to think about you when I'm coming and when I'm going. I pray for you early in the morning, sometimes late at night. And you pray for me. I know you do because you tell me. And I shepherd and am shepherded because Jesus has a plan for more than one elder in each location. You can read about that in Titus. So I'm thankful if the leadership in preaching here at the church has helped you connect. But the shepherding, that's what the chief shepherd is driving it toward. First Peter 2.25 says that he is the shepherd as well as the overseer of our souls. Do you affirm that this morning? And this morning, I want to remind you, because it's so easy to go for quick fixes, and it's so easy to become disillusioned when the quick fixes in this life don't work. I want to remind you that he's a personal and he is an intimate Savior. I want to remind you, or perhaps tell you for the first time, that he has personal and intimate words to say to you through his word. And this is certainly true of Revelation 22, 1 to 5. Just before we read it, let me tell you where we've been. 
in chapter 21, the new Jerusalem was described. And as we come to the epilogue of this book, Lord willing, this very next month here as we come into November, we'll see in the last, ver last verses the final description of things. And today we see the final paradise description alludes to the first paradise in creation, the Garden of Eden. To put it succinctly, the last chapters of the Bible mirror the first. As one said, we're going to see the intimacy of God with his people in these few short verses, as well as the abundance of blessing that he gives to his people forevermore. The final state restores. It restores that which has been broken. So if you're broken this morning, this is the place to come. Not just to receive a temporary quenching of your needs, but to receive living water that you may never thirst again in your soul. The final state restores the communion that was between God and his people before sin corrupted it. The consummation of history is actually more magnificent than the beginning of history. The garden is now also described as a city, and the light has driven out all of the night. As we're about to read God's word and meditate on it for a bit, I think it might help you to remember this word and this message if you think of it using a three-letter summary, P, I, and P, and it stands for the following. Physical, internal, and permanent. The message today after I read the text will follow a threefold outline. The physical, the internal, and the permanent. And what I will mean to say by that is we will see physical wellness in verses 1 and 2. We're going to see internal wellness in verses 3 and 4. And we're going to see permanent wellness in verse 5. This is the glorious description of the new creation following the second coming of Christ. Hear now the word of the Lord. Revelation 22.1 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or candle, as some translations say, or sun. Why? Verse 5 ends, For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign, say it with me, forever and ever. Or in the Greek, the idiom, into the ages 
of the ages. So first, as we take this on its parts, let's consider how in the new creation, our first P, physical wellness will be there forevermore. I wonder this morning if you have any physical ailments. Do you have any orthopedic issues? Never had to have a shoulder operated on? Have a weak knee? How about a hip? Ever broken a bone? Arthritic pain? The description in Revelation is one of absolute physical wellness. One in which we'll be free from pain. Notice how in verses 1 and 2, we have an explanation of the provision that we all need. Our physical bodies cannot be well without food and water. And furthermore, a sign of health is having an appetite for food. Right? Notice how basic and how simple and how kind God is to make explicable to us what he intends to do for us forevermore because we're his people. He's going to make sure we never run out of food and he's going to make sure we never run out of water. And he goes back to an ancient story to remind us of an eternal need and that is to be physically well by him. One commentator said it like this. He said, Revelation is designed, now listen to this carefully, is designed not only to inform us and to assure us about God's final purposes. It is to inform and to assure us, that's to be sure. But also to increase our longing for God to increase our longing for God and the realization of His purpose. So surely these words are to inform us and to assure us that's true. But also, it incre- this word is to increase us in our longing for God and the realization of His purpose. Perhaps we see the realization of His purpose more in these first two verses and then the right longing for him in the two that follow. The sureness of this final blissful state comforts saints during times of temptation and times of persecution. As one says, it purifies our desires by directing them to God and to his glory. And then the counterfeits of this world, we see them for what they are. We have eyes to see the beauties and joys of this creation as pointers to God and to His goodness rather than foolishly perverted, create, perverting created things into idols which we would then offer our ultimate allegiance. The center of the new world is God Himself. It is not a created thing. The center of the new world is God Himself and the Lamb, and the rule 
and control, symbolized by a throne, produces beauty and blessing in the new world. We talked last week quite a bit about beauty. We talked about art. We see this week not a description of the architecture so much as a description of the provision to meet our most basic needs. Unless you think that that's an unimportant theme, God must have thought it was important to stick it in these last verses. But also, I think we know it's important. I mean, if you just have to think about it for a moment, one of these three points we're talking about this morning is going to hit us. Either we have physical problems, we're not well, or we got internal problems and we're not well. Maybe some of both. Maybe one feeds the other. And if somehow you're in a season of life where you don't have any quantifiable internal or external problems, you surely can appreciate that that's not permanent. So as follows our points this morning, hang along because our first point may not hit you. If our second point does not hit you, our third point most assuredly should hit you. As we have ears to hear, we pray, and eyes to see what God is doing for us. As I said, the center of this new world is God. And that's, that's where the healing comes from, and that's where the provision comes from. The new world has already been described as free from all problems and suffering in chapter 21, verse 4. Chapter 22, verse 2, picks up on a the theme of provision, not only of food, but also of water. This is picking up on a prophetic promise from Ezekiel, Ezekiel 47. And Ezekiel 47, verse 12, reads similarly. It says, And on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Now that follows right along with this text. If you look at Revelation 22, you can hardly be mistaken as anything but picking up on the prophet Ezekiel when it says, yielding its fruit each month. And to conclude verse 2, the leaves of the trees, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. As Brother Danny already pointed out in our prayer of confession, and assurance of pardon. Water in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the writings about both, is symbolic for the Holy Spirit. So we see hues of the Trinity here, with God and the Lamb and the Spirit, which is explicitly mentioned in Revelation 22:17, as the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, come, Lord Jesus, come. So we have with water an assurance of physical wellness, but just like Jesus uses it in John 4 and John 7, we have an assurance of spiritual wellness. It's not so easy to separate the two and to atomize the points. Water quenches our thirst physically, but the living water of Christ, it quenches our thirst spiritually. Ezekiel is pointing to a greater reality as water speaks to the Spirit, and is symbolic for the Spirit, and God promised in the prophets and delivered through the Messiah's person and work, He delivered for us His indwelling Spirit. 
because of the Spirit within us, we can resonate with these words that were given by the Spirit, and we can be readied even as we long for the reality that will come upon Christ's return. But we know that things are broken because of the tree of life. You don't get very far in reading through the Bible without coming to Genesis chapter 2 and reading about the tree of life and that command, right? Not to eat of it. And you don't get much further in the Bible before you see creation corrupted by the fall. Because our first parents did what? They did what they ought not to have done. They ate from the tree. And can anybody in this room rightly say that we haven't also done what ought not to be done? I mean, who among us has not done what ought not to be done? Maybe yours wasn't a tree that you weren't supposed to eat from about the knowledge of good and evil, but who among us hasn't doubted the goodness of God in His ways and sought to do it our own way? That's the point of the gospel, is it not? Each of us, like sheep, are prone to do, to use the metaphor. We need a shepherd because each of us have gone our own way, haven't we? And we've fallen woefully short of God, of the glory of God. And so we must be restored. As some theologians call it, the storyline of the Bible runs from creation to consummation or from creation to restoration with redemption and the fall, or with the fall rather in redemption, soaking up everything in between. There's a lot of truth to that. I rather like the word consummation better than restoration because this isn't simply a restoration of Eden 1.0, but as my sermon title, Eden 2.0, indicates, it's a permanent blessing of Eden where we are saved to sin no more. So it goes into the ages of the ages. Physical wellness forevermore to stay with the theme of the first point. But we must appreciate these promises. We must go back to where it all got started. So would you want to do that in your Bible or possibly if we have it by following on the screen? Genesis 2, I'll read verses 7 to 10 and 15 to 18 kind of as a sampling here. Here's what it said. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant, pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Then in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in charge of Eden to work it and keep it. So work was good, and he had work to do, as we said last week. It goes on to say, And the Lord God commanded the man, or Adam, Adam, and he said to him, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We know what happened, right? He, 
he made him a helper fit for him. And Adam's counterpart, her name is Eve. And so Adam and Eve, or marriage, becomes a core metaphor for the most intimate of relationships throughout the Bible. It shouldn't be lost on us that Revelation gives thorough treatment to marriage. Revelation contrasts the bride that is the, the bride of Christ, the church, with the harlot Babylon that is known to seek the pleasures of life rather than to seek the promises of God. And Babylon, because she will not turn from her ways, though called upon by the saints to do so, she will finally face that which she wanted, separation from God eternally. And she will be left to find out just how awful it is when God's presence is removed from a people. But that's not the story for us as the bride of Christ, as the Bible says on one end and the other. What we find is that God has promises for us and He is tender with us. And even though, even though earth is corrupted and we are fallen as human beings, we do still bear God's image. We're still His image bearers. And our marriages still show us something in their better parts of what life with Christ is like. In a marriage, there is an intimate bond that's unlike any other experience in this life. And God defined it and described it in the earliest chapters of the Bible. And He always meant for it to point to a greater marriage feast, a greater marriage that would be without fail between Himself and His church. There will be continuity with marriage on earth and discontinuity with marriage on earth. But a fair inference is that a continuity is the intimacy that we so treasure in our closest relationship on earth will be an even greater intimacy with Christ in heaven where we are neither married nor given in marriage according to the Gospel of Matthew. Our wellness in heaven is without question. God started this thing by making man. And it'll take God to remake man. It will take God to remove the marredness of our image bearing as bearing image to God. But we still bear image in our marriages. We still bear image to God. We bear image to God as we go through these steps of life. Genesis 2 lays out the parameters for what happened in Genesis 3. 
Let's look at Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19. It says, And to Adam, our first parent, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam was given the command. He wasn't to follow his wife, who was not first given the command. He was to lead his wife to follow God. The fallenness of humanity falls squarely on the shoulders of man. We should not have been looking to our wives to lead us in godliness, and we should not be doing it now. Men are to lead in their homes. They're to lead in godliness pursuits. This was the problem in Eden, and it's the problem east of Eden. But the glorious truth is, as Christians, in redemption, we don't stay east of Eden. We're going to be ushered into a new Eden, and that's what Revelation 22 is about. But if you want to live a weller life now, men, in my hearing... Do not abdicate your responsibility and your privilege of leading your home in spiritual things. What God hath joined together, let man not separate. Looking back, and that is the frustration of the fall, by the way. Genesis 3 describes the fall of man from God's created order. And the whole rest of the Bible is a great redemption story about a groom coming after his bride, Jesus coming after us, his church. And the consummation of it is described, hues of it throughout the prophets. But for sure, here at the very end, we see it. Our first verses, let's look at it, says, Then the angel, Revelation 22, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Fruitfulness, provision, physical wellness, needs met, appetites whole. And it says here, this little tagline at the end, which bridges us into our second point, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, I've already said he's picking up on the prophet Ezekiel. And surely, no cursedness comes into heaven, because verse 3 says that right, right out of it. So what, what is the healing of the nations? What are, we, what are we talking about there? So let's pivot from our first point, physical wellness, to our second point, internal wellness. And let me just, just kind of take a kind of every man approach to this point, and every woman approach for that matter. Inside of us, there's these longings, we're broken. There are things inside of us we can't even quite describe each day the frustrations that we feel and why we feel them. That's all part of the fallen human condition. And we seek to fix that six ways to Sunday with all kinds of quick fixes and all kinds of new programs. And I mean, this is, it's as old as time, usually rooted in a misunderstanding of the Trinity or an outright denial of the Godhead altogether. 
We go for quick fixes which overpromise and underproduce, just like satanic devices always do. God has made plain what is main, and that is that healing only comes through his redemption. He offers it to you, and you must receive it. And of course, redemption comes through the Lamb, Jesus Christ, right? Now, one of the things that we are so internally frustrated about is our relative lack of unity on this earth. We have so much division. I mean, you can't get from your house to the church house, and I know this from talking to you week after week, without the frustrations that are involved in relational difficulties in family. And then you get here, and you can't get through the corridors without being frustrated with the church family. And if you're actually listening to the sermon this morning, you won't get out of here without being frustrated with something I say. <laughs> Why? Because the human condition is corrupt. And we can put on a straight face all we want. We can smile, and we should try to be happy, and all those kinds of things. It's true. Shouldn't be woe is me and gloom. All I get all of that. But in reality, books like Lamentations and Job and Ecclesiastes are in the Bible for a reason. They are vivid reminders that things are wrong in this life on this earth, right? Things are broken. They're not idyllic. Creation fell. And we need redemption. And we're heading toward, as God's redeemed people, a consummation. But we're not there yet. We experience it to some extent now, but we're not there yet. And I especially think, at the end of verse 2 and beginning of verse 3, we have internal pain being alluded to. Consider it with the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations. The nations are divided. There's no doubt about that. They war against each other. But ethnos or ethnicities, peoples, they're at division too. And the description around the throne is people from every background, from every tongue, every language, every group. The description is that heaven will not be united around sameness in a culture or a country. Heaven will be united around the throne. Heaven will be united because of the gospel. And heaven will be international union of believers from every country known. At least that's the way that I read it. Now that brings a lot of internal healing to people that are bothered by the divisions in our world. At least it can. It offers a promise. And it says in verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. Well, the curse is found far and wide. It's all over. We've already said that it's in us. We're each sinners. The creation, we've saw, seen that in Genesis as a result of the fall. We have thorns and thistles. I mean, you can't grow a garden without having to tend the thing daily, at least weekly. Farmers are frustrated. And despite all the pesticides and all the opportunities that we have to try to make things better, and we do have a lot of advancements, we still have frustration, and we have a temporalness to this life and to the efficacy of our labor. It says heaven won't be like that because consummation, 
will have occurred. It says in verse 3, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. In it. You might have heard me emphasize that in the initial reading. The throne of God and the Lamb, and as we've seen, the Spirit. So we see this, this unity amidst this diversity, bringing internal as well as physical healing to the people that are there. All of God's people. So no more curse. God is there in it. He's present, which is far greater than any presence He gives us. You may know that little play on words from Christmas time, but it's true. He will be there, present with us, and we will be there too. Look at the end of verse 3. As His servants, we will worship Him. And the range of meaning for the word for worship and servants is akin. Your translation might say, His servants will serve Him. There is a range of meaning there. The word for worship can also mean serve. We see the same word in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, where we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That is our spiritual act of worship. Same word family here is worship. Servants that will serve. Servants that will worship. There'll be no discontinuity between who we say we are as Christians and what we actually are. We will be completely known as Christians and we will be completely in our behavior as Christians. We will serve Him, and He will be there, and our service will be worship, and our worship will be service. Regarding our worship, Jim Hamilton said it like this. He said, light has no fellowship with darkness. Man must be renewed. It's easy to underestimate the problem of evil and the human condition when everything is corrupted, everything's reversed. But the image of God on man is helpful to our recovering a vision of where we're going. And the doctrine of God, His triunity, is the place to get reformed toward Him in a world that is perverse. He says, God and the Lamb are two persons who share one nature. John chapter 10, verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. Actually, the Spirit teaches yet again here at the end of the book that God is in three persons with one nature. And so we worship Him and we find healing internally now as we lean into what will be then. He is better. Worship Him for exactly the reason that Muslims do not. He is Trinity. Find healing of the diverse nations in one gospel in who God is. Worship Him as He is and not as you wish He'd be because He knows better than you do. He is better. He knows better than I do. He is better. We must go to His Word to know how He wants to be worshipped and really to know who He is. God is the best thing about the better Eden. And He's really not a thing. He's in three persons, and he's, he's really not reducible to anything, any words. When God's asked how he wants to be named, he says, I will be who I will be. That's how he answers Moses. And you might remember Moses. You know, what did Moses, Moses was clicking on a lot of cylinders. He got a lot of revelation, didn't he? I mean, he's 
attributed first five books of the Bible, the law. Moses wrote them, but what did he want that he couldn't quite get? Well, he wanted to see God face to face, didn't he? But can anybody see God, man, God face to any man see God face to face without dying? The answer that's no. Moses, perhaps the most revealed to man in the Old Testament, Moses brings down the commands. Moses certainly intimacy with God in this life promises in the next. He appears again 1,500 years later at the Mount of Transfiguration alongside the prophet Elijah. But Moses doesn't live out heaven on earth. Not then. Now what is the promise of Revelation 22 for? It's the answer to the question that we ought be asking and we will be asking as we get closer and closer to the revelation that God has given us. And that is, God, can I just see you? Can I see your face? Can we be together? And that's what makes for a good marriage, isn't it? Can I see you? Can we have an uncorrupted intimacy? It's the question we're to ask as we go deeper and deeper in this revelation. And I don't just mean the last book. I mean the whole book. Get in the weeds with this for me for just a moment, as I believe it profitable. We're all about the doctrine of word, right? We talk a lot about the doctrine of Scripture. But this word wouldn't be this word if God wasn't who God is. The communication is great because of the character of the communicator. This word would be worthless if it didn't come from God. It is great because it came from God. To drink living water, we must hear from God. And how do we hear from God that we may never thirst again but by His Word? But the worth of His Word comes in the fact that it's His Word. I said, what is the relevance of this whole in the weeds train of thought? It's how you get to the point Moses was to say, I want to see God face to face. The man who's received all this revelation, I want to see you. It's the right question, even if it will not be validated until the new creation. And the closer you get to God through his word, the more you start to ask the question, can I see you? 2 Corinthians gives us a glimpse of the fact that this is already, even though it's not yet completely fulfilled in our lives, because that one true face and the description of what Moses asked for is discussed by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. It's a beautiful text. You might read it. You might read it this afternoon. You might read it this week. 
But there is no veil between us and Christ now. It's completely removed. The, the gospel's done that for us. We're there. But we're going to be there incarnately when kingdom come. Like we're going to, it's, it's not going to be, there'll be, it won't just be by faith. You won't need spiritual imagination to paint word pictures from this text for you. You're going to be there. And it says in verse 4 of Revelation 22, they will see his face. That's us. We're the they. We will see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads. There will be no discontinuity between how we live and who we are. Our identity will be in Christ. There will be no beast marks. There will be Christ marks. We will be internally well because the triune God is there. These are the promises. You know, you've ever heard the old saying that if you want to get the right answers, you have to ask the right questions? That's true here. The right answers is not just to be informed and assured, but to long for God. Remember how one commentator said that? I read it earlier. It's to long for God and for His purpose, not just for assurance and information. And, and we see these kinds of, uh, these kinds of illusions in, in like the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, 8, where it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See Him. It's what you need that you don't always know that you need that makes all the difference. That's salvation, right? I mean, until the lights came on, you didn't even know you needed Christ. And it's made all the difference. Amen? It's your testimonies in the baptistry. It's your testimony. It's my testimony. It's made all the difference. We need his shepherding. We need his tender care. We need his intimate touch. Think of 1 Corinthians 13, 12 with the frustrations of this life in mind. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then how are we going to see? Face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Look at this servant and master, this creation, creator. Look at this, this, this unity we have uncorrupted in intimacy with our groom. The whole thing is beautiful. Think of 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, with this tender language. Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now, we're God's children. John has said here in another place, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Why shall we be like him? Why shall his name be on our foreheads? Because we'll see him. We'll see him as he is. This is our hope, right? This is where our hope is found. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved... It's what? It's the very power of God. This isn't cute. This is real. This isn't fictitious. This is eternal. You know the problem with being cute? Coy, clever, cavalier. It tends to sort of serve the purposes of the one that's cute. 
coy, clever, and cavalier. It's like the Proverbs 31 woman versus a beautiful young lady that's not going to stay that way. What God offers us is substantive and eternal. It goes past initial cuteness to glorious beauty. It's eternal beauty. You don't have to chase the drag of what you once were because of what you will be. Look to God. Look not to yourself for your salvation. The scripture says, but God intervened on our behalf. Look to God today. Long to see his face. Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs wrote of the smoking flax of barely hanging on to the faith. He spoke of, spoke of the bruised reed and the broken Christian in his book, The Bruised Reed. He spoke to the weary soul on seeing the face of God. Listen to what he said. Faith pulls off the mask from Christ's face and sees a loving heart under contrary appearances. Faith pulls away the mask from Christ as his father was never nearer him in strength to support him than when he was furthest off in sense of favor to comfort him. So Christ is never nearer us in power to uphold us than when he seems most to hide his presence from us. The influence of the Son of Righteousness pierces deeper than his light. In such cases, whatever Christ's present bearing is toward us, let us oppose his nature and office against it. He cannot deny himself. He cannot but discharge the office his Father has laid upon him. We see here the Father has undertaken that he not quench the smoking flax. And Christ has also undertaken to represent us to the Father, appearing before him for us until he presents us blameless before him. John 17 tells us so. The Father has given us to Christ, and Christ gives back again to the Father. Do not wrong the work of his Spirit in your heart. Satan, as he slanders Christ to us, so he slanders us to ourselves. If you are not so much as smoking flax, then why do you not renounce your interest in Christ and disclaim the covenant, covenant of grace? This you dare not do. Why do you not give yourself up wholly to other pleasures? This your spirit will not allow you to do. Where do the come from? Lay your present state alongside the office of Christ as such. And do not despise the consolation of the Almighty, nor refuse your own mercy. Arms of Christ. And if you perish there, perish there. If you do not, you are sure to perish. If mercy is to be found anywhere, it is there. This is internal healing through the name on our forehead and the face of Christ. Third and finally is permanent wellness. It's just one verse, but the profundity in it is there to see. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So light is a symbol of ethical purity. It's closely associated with God in the writings of John. So it's fitting, as one said, that the final symbolic vision is characterized by pervasive light with no darkness. All evil is gone. 
And the splendor and brightness of God's presence fills the whole entire universe. The scariness of night is gone. The, thing, the bad things that happen in the night is gone. Here God is tenderly communicating with us at a level that every single one of us can understand. This is not heady theology, although it can be for anybody that wants to try to connect all the dots with the law and the prophets and everything else. But this is straightforward comfort. I wonder if that's exactly what you need this morning. As we live in the midst of the storyline of the Bible with not just creation and fall and redemption, but waiting for the consummation, I wonder if comfort is exactly what we need. Romans 5:17 says, "For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man Jesus Christ?" Romans reminds us that in Genesis, sin and death reigned through Adam. And in Christ, the second Adam, we receive abundance of grace and a gift that is free to us of reigning righteousness in our lives forevermore through that one man, Jesus Christ. We are the light of the world now and so far as Christ shines through us, but the light will shine uncorruptedly forevermore in the new creation. I'm reminded when we talk about luminaries and light, I'm reminded of something that Charles Spurgeon wrote about the subject. Quoting the Psalms about sowing light into the ground, he said, we are mistaken when we look for an immediate harvest when we sow light. The er error is very natural, though, for we want immediate fixes, don't we? But it seems impossible for us to think of burying light. Yet light is sown, as the Psalter says. Light lies latent. None can see it. It is sown. We are quite sure that, if one, that, if, that it must one day manifest itself. So take heart, brothers. Have courage. We need not be in a hurry. Let us in patience Possess our souls, for soon shall our souls possess light and gladness. Charles Spurgeon, the checkbook of faith, October 23rd. We will rise because Christ rose. And we will have eternal mercy flowing from the throne of God. I was thinking about the unbeliever this morning in preparing for this morning. And I wanted to say to you, Christ is offering you physical and internal and permanent healing if you'll receive it. Wellness forever. Physically, internally, every piece of pain that you've got emotionally, mentally, every ache and pain you've got, total wellness forever and permanently by meaning forever if you'll receive it. But you have no promise of it outside of Christ. You must receive him. Please do today. Not through a, a lovely batch of words, but just through receiving his lovely promise and telling someone else about it so we can encourage you in your faith. Believer, I want to speak to you this morning.
Christ has secured on your behalf for you physical and internal healing, wellness, permanently. He will never leave you, nor will He forsake you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not offer promises like we do. He offers them with intent to keep them all the way through. And He's faithful. He will not violate Himself. He did not secure a salvation that depends on you. He secured a salvation independent of you and for you. And that's what leads us to be His servants and His worshipers. This is the plan from the foundations of the earth, and this is Reformation Day for that reason. Glory to God. I opened this sermon thinking about these things, trying to speak as a comforter and as a shepherd, trying to speak words of gratitude about the opportunity that I have here to preach the gospel. And as we approach the end of Revelation, I want to thank you for working to support my time in preparing to preach the gospel here every week. I get to spend more time than most preachers studying to preach. And I'm thankful for that. I really am. And I hope that it's indicative of what I think it's indicative of. And that is your desire to have this revelation rightly divided as the word of truth for you. I think that's what it is. And if it is, it doesn't speak about your goodness or our goodness as elders or my goodness as the preacher today. It speaks to the goodness of our shepherd, right? And so we turn to him today in prayer and we ask for his help. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? God, thank you for giving us a recovery of biblical principles to the Reformation. Where we've strayed from those roots, help us reform. We pray for the healing leaves for the nations. And now we pray for the hungry in Ethiopia and the kidnapped in Haiti and the genocide in China. We pray for Christian citizens here to have wisdom and freedom. We pray for the good of all, for service and not for self only and for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for Jonas Wyatt and his family, who's in Covenant Baptist Church on the edge of North Carolina this morning worshiping because he's away on work leave, and we pray for him and his family. We pray this morning for my great-uncle Etheridge Jesus' family, whom we laid to rest in St. Louis yesterday. We have so many griefs So many people in this flock have lost a parent or a grandparent in the last season of life. And we petition you for them to find comfort. To the lonely, we petition you to bring community. We pray for those who work and who have businesses for successes that your gospel might go forth through their efforts. We pray for our church's ministries to women this Wednesday, to men on our monthly Saturday, those that offer leaders in these services when we come to worship you. 
for those that have labored to make plans for 2022, should you will it, as is representative in the packet for the members that's produced for today. We petition you for your help with member candidates, counseling, ministries of card writing, and ministries of all kinds. We pray for elections this week where they are and for the godly to be allowed to lead. We pray for government as we're told to do in 1 Timothy 2. We petition you for help. We pray for our pregnant mamas and unborn children and for all of our children and youth. What challenges they face, Lord. And what an all-sufficient Savior you are to them. We thank you. We pray for the sick to be healed. Our prayer list is thick with sick people physically. We pray for the internally troubled to be healed, emotionally sick, internally troubled and anxious mentally. We pray for those that are plagued with distrust to find healing leaves. We pray for our missionaries, Dave and Pam Wilson. We pray for the half a billion believers in the world out of seven that their gospel light might shine forth and go forward to the six and a half billion that desperately need you. We pray in our community for broken families to be healed. And if healing cannot be found, at least for protection from further hurt. We pray for the religiously confused and we ask for satanic strongholds of misbelief to be broken, for unbelief to be broken through. We accept this battle as spiritual, and we come to you asking for spiritual help, often from that unseen realm. We pray for Deputy Hicks and those that serve this community. Pray for those that have been excommunicated because of their obstinance to recommunicate in the faith, to take communion again, even as we prepare our hearts for next Sunday when we will. Guilt subsides where repentance begins, and we ask you for a healthy dose of shame and guilt that we might repent, that we might find your pleasure and your peace. Help us to be lovers of you, O God, instead of lovers of pleasure. Help us to not be struck by the trivial pursuits of life, but to be struck by your beauty and to set aside your day for your worship every single week. Grip us with your accessibility and your character by these words from Revelation 22. God, we want to thank you for our group home in town. I remember Kenny Sugg as a member of this church that's passed on to glory and met you. I want to pray for those who have particular needs and bring us particular blessings. I want to pray for those that are nervous and uncertain about what comes next. Pray for your peace that passes understanding. Thank you for the singular power of prayer that you've entrusted to we, your people. We pray for our age. We pray for this time that you've entrusted us to. You didn't entrust us to another. Help us to do all things without murmurings and disputings. You've vested our faithfulness in this time. Shorten the reign of sin and hasten your own glorious appealing. Appearing, and that's the appealing that we have to offer to others through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.